Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys, episode 110. The New York Subway, part 2. 3. A C E B D Q. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome back to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we are about to present to you the second part of the history of the New York City subway. This, of course, is the last part of our entire look at public transportation. Now, in the first episode, we talked about just about a few years of the formation of the very first line that went from Lower Manhattan up to the Bronx. In this podcast, we're going to cover almost 105 years, basically (laughs) what happened to the subway, how it went from about a couple dozen miles of line to almost 229 miles of route. We really did just leave passengers uh, on the platforms, if you will, in 1904 with the opening of that first IRT line. So we're quite excited to tell the rest of the story. We'll be bringing up, of course, the key decision in the future of the subway, which was called the dual contracts. Sounds kind of dry, but it was, it's actually one of the most important decisions that was made in New York City history. We'll also talk about how the city, which has franchised out the very first line to a private company, begins dipping its toe into the idea of running its own subway line. And if we have time, we might even talk about some contemporary issues, such as that... Second Avenue subway line, which will be showing up one of these years. And has actually been in the planning stages. Since the 1920s. But to get to that destination, join us as we take an express route through 105 years of the history of the New York subway. Tune, Tom, I'm sure you recognize that um, song. Take That's the A Train. Take the A Train by Duke Ellington, of course, about the A Train, which we're going to talk about the development of in this podcast. He could have called it Take the Eighth Avenue. But it doesn't have as much syncopation. And I'm we'll imagining. get into that yes. later. All right. Well, a quick recap of what we talked about last episode. But if you, you need to listen to last episode to really understand where we're going to be starting from. But a quick recap, of course, we talked about the very first subway line that went from City Hall up to the Annex District, also known as the South Bronx. Now, that train was actually owned by the city, but operated by a private company by the name of the Innerborough Rapid Transit Company, which we will, of course, call the IRT. That was run by financier August Belmont and engineered by William Barclay Parsons. 
It opened on October 27th, 1904. By this time, of course, the IRT was already in control of all of Manhattan's elevated railroads. Now, there was actually, by this time, 1904, a second subway line already began. Now, that first one was called, of course, in official language, Contract 1. Contract 2... Um, was a smaller expansion that would start from City Hall, but then go south. And then it would reach out to its third borough officially. It would go to Brooklyn. There would be one stop there at Bowling Green, go underneath the East River, and go up into Brooklyn and would have a terminal point at Atlantic Avenue. Like I said, this was started in 1902. It was completed in May 1st of 1908. Notably, by the way, since I'm mentioning Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Rapid Transit, which was the company that owned all of the elevated trains and trolleys in Brooklyn, they hadn't yet dabbled in the subway, but they're going to come they up... they were looking across the river. They, they were probably kind of envious of the IRT's monopoly that it had over the subway. I believe they were quite envious. We will uh, get to that in a second. Now, of course, these subways were a huge success, so Parsons himself was coming up with all of these new ideas to improve the subway and brand new lines to go to brand new places. He had a lot of different ideas. For instance, one would be called the H-Plan, because keep in mind that this first line went up the east side in lower Manhattan, cut across at 42nd Street, and went up the west side in Upper Manhattan. It went up Broadway, right. So to complete the H, he basically wanted a mirror image of that right. so that you'd have one that went up the west side, went over on 42nd Street, and then went up the Upper East Side. He also had a design for a triborough plan that would have reached out into other areas of the Bronx, would have reached deep into Brooklyn, and might have even flirted with actually going into Queens, God, mm. for, for goodness sakes. I mean, I can't believe that there's not even a line in Queens yet. Great ideas, but I mean, as with so many things that are super successful that everyone wants a piece of the pie, with too much success, well, it can lead to delays. As a result, all of these best laid plans, it would take more than a decade for a real plan to finally shape up. And that wasn't for lack of passengers, because the whole system was designed to handle 600,000 passengers a day. As you said, it launched in 1904. Well, by 1905, there were more than 600,000 already riding it every day. And by 1908, there were 800,000 people riding the subways every day. So the system was already over capacity and in need of expansion. So one day, the Metropolitan Street Railway Company, this company owns most of the trolley lines, the streetcars Mm -hmm. in Manhattan. They raise their hand and they're like, hey, you know what? We'd like to build one of these too, just like the IRT. And pretty soon, other groups that come up out of the woodwork and say, well, hey, we'd like to do one too. We'd like one. Soon they have like 19 different competing different lines, a complete tangle. Now, of course, the Metropolitan wasn't really interested in getting into the subway. All they wanted to do is to make their portfolio seem a little bit nicer so that in 1906, they actually merge with the IRT, who ends up doing this to get rid of a competitor, because Uh the IRT doesn't want any of this competition, obviously. The public soon grows really jaded of all of this, all these shenanigans, all these sort of corporate shenanigans. There's also a growing distrust of public utility companies by this time, being spurred on by politically driven newspapers like those of William Randolph Hearst, who, of course, was very 
anti-private-owned subways. In 1907, the state actually steps in and disbands that old Rapid Transit Commission and comes up with a group called the Public Service Commission. Uh-huh. They're a little bit more reform-oriented. They actually are a group that is demanding greater regulation over some of these private companies, by the way. But it's also strange because we've talked about in the Elevated Rail podcast how all of these elevated lines were also competing private companies uh, Mm -hmm. that were held by very rich men. I mean, this wasn't a new concept. It doesn't seem like a novel idea to me to have privately held subway companies. The novel idea is to have something that the city and the the state actually has a lot more control of. Not surprisingly, of course, with this new oversight group, IRT... Still not very thrilled. And they, through their political connections, of course, of which they had many, managed to delay a lot of the plans of the commission while basically sitting back on their existing tracks and uh, just operating those and throwing little promises out here and there, but never really following up on a lot of those things. So in April of 1910, the state actually allots $60 million to start building portions of that triborough system that I mentioned that Parson had created at this point seven years previous, to start stretching into those further areas of the Bronx and down into deeper areas of Brooklyn. The IRT was enraged by this because they didn't want to have the city as an actual competitor, so they refused to participate in building any more new lines. But the city said it was just going to go ahead and build these extensions of the IRT lines? Well, they ended up pulling back because they really did not have the financial resources to really do this. It was almost like they were trying to get the IRT to step up and match it, which they attempted to do in December of 1910. They brought out their own version of an expansion plan. It was essentially to build that H plan, that uh-huh. other thing that, Par- that Parsons had designed, and it would also stretch into Brooklyn and the Bronx. Everyone was really excited by this. It's like, finally, the IRT is finally waking up, and they're finally going to expand this. But it really didn't serve the city's needs as much as the state thought it should. They were basically at loggerheads here, and IRT wasn't going to build the city's plan. The city wasn't going to be able to convince the IRT to do it. So basically, what they needed is just one more ingredient to spark innovation and to come up with an idea that the, uh, maybe the IRT did, wouldn't necessarily need to build the city's plan. Maybe there was another company that could build the city's plan. Exactly. And this is where the BRT, the Brooklyn Rapid Transit Company, comes into the story. So the BRT is already, as we mentioned before, in Brooklyn running the street railway systems. And they were watching, as you mentioned, Greg, with jealousy as the IRT was operating. You know, the poor IRT didn't want to expand its lines because <laughs> sure. it was they would have also been taking a risk here as they would put their money in it as well as the city putting their money into it since there was some shared risk here. Right. Things were just going too well for the IRT in, this pr- in the current plan to really risk new lines to areas that were less populated. But on March 2nd, 1911, the, the BRT proposed its own last-minute offer for two new routes. Now, one route would actually start at the southern tip of Manhattan, go under Broadway to 42nd Street, then up 7th Avenue to 59th Street with a connection to the Queensboro Bridge. Another route would be a tunnel, this is fascinating, under 4th Avenue in Brooklyn that would connect Brooklyn with Staten Island. Wow, a Staten Island subway. Staten Island subway. I mean, that's something we don't have today. It even seems radical 100 years later. I should mention, by the way, that that first plan that you talked about, yes. that line would go under the East River, would be parallel to the IRT line, which went 
under the East River to Brooklyn. Right. And also when we say go under the East River and then go up Broadway, well, remember at this time there wasn't anything under Broadway. Mm-mm. So there wasn't a Broadway line. I mean, perhaps it's a very obvious point, but it's it's just amazing to think back, to really rewind back to this moment where there is that single IRT line. Mm-hmm. To everybody's surprise, I think, the BRT proposal was taken seriously by the commission. And thus in 1911, after six months of negotiation, this commission developed an agreement with the IRT and the BRT called the Dual IRT-BRT Contracts. These were actually signed two years later, in March of 1913. The two companies would thus split the construction and the management, really, of two whole sets of subway lines. May I tell you what those lines are today? Oh, yes, please do, because they're all obviously still with us. What are those numbers? What are those lettered lines, numbered lines? Well, I'm glad you asked me about the numbers and the letters, because the... We can relate these lines to service numbers and letters that we Mm -hmm. use today, though these are sort of more modern constructs that we use these. But I can at least throw those out for reference. So to look at these routes today and the lines that were built by these two companies, the IRT and the BRT, if we simplify and just pull back for a second, the IRT was developing the routes that are today numbered. So in this first set of contracts, they were developing the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 mm-hmm. trains. Not necessarily the entire route. Right, because in later, in later years, it would be ex- they would all be expanded. But these right. are the, the origins of the line, the, the very hearts of these routes. Right. Just so we don't confuse anybody, or maybe to confuse our listeners, um, <laughs> we, we've been throwing out the words routes and lines. And actually, the lines have not changed. The lines are, you know, where the track has been laid, and they go by different names. For example, the 456 is known as the Lexington Avenue line, and it still is today sort of internally, the Lexington Avenue line on the IRT, and by, you know, subway enthusiasts. Train buffs. Of course. Just to be clear, the routes or the service numbers here are the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Now, the BRT was developing many of the letters that we use today. So they developed in the dual contracts, like the 14th Street line, the L, the N, the Q, the R, that would be the Broadway line, today's N, Q, and R, the Brighton Beach line, which today is the B and Q, the 4th Avenue line in Brooklyn, the, which is today served by the D, N, and R, and the J and Z, the Nassau Street line. I hope by this time that you've actually pulled out a, a map of, of the <laughs> of the subway. It might, it's actually easier to... Well, at this point, it, yes. I mean, we can just know that the IRT was developing what are today's numbered routes, and the BRT was developing the lettered that would change a little bit later as somebody else would enter with more letters. But, but for now, but for it's now. easy breezy. The important thing to take away from this is that the city was allowing another subway company into Manhattan to develop lines. Now, they had learned a lot about construction from that original IRT line, so they, they avoided some of the same mistakes during the construction period. Like, remember we were talking about all the troubles they had with the cut-and-cover technique? Mm-hmm. Well, this time around... They still use cotton cover for most of these lines, but they were doing it faster. They were covering faster, putting some kind of temporary roadway in place so that pedestrians could move around and stores could operate. And, and It wasn't as disruptive. Which helped with a popular attitude toward the project. And, of course, they drilled more deeply for a lot of these tunnels as well. Well, they needed to drill actually five tunnels under the rivers. Let's start with that. Wow, yes. Under the East River and Harlem River, connecting the three boroughs. Of course, I was... 
that's you know dangerous business. They have the Sandhogs working in these terribly oppressive conditions, the dark tunnels with compressed air. I mean, you can imagine being down there digging, drilling, setting off dynamite underneath the East River. That would just not be my idea of fun. And up until this point, the only one who had really done this had, of course, been the, uh, the Penn Railroad had dug their tunnels uh, just a few years before this. And I believe we have a podcast on that, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. On June 22, 1915, Greg, the BMT celebrated its service opening, and a passenger could thus hop on at Coney Island, ride to Fourth Avenue, Brooklyn, go over the Manhattan Bridge, and arrive in Chambers Street. And, Greg, passengers could finally ride between at least three of the boroughs. Oh, no, four. Four of the boroughs. Finally, one of the amazing things about the dual contracts is finally, and I mean, we've had five different parts of our transportation series here, (laughs) and none of them, we've barely mentioned Queens. Finally, what this project allows is finally the first linkage between Queens and Manhattan. These two companies basically had to be coerced into going to Queens because in 1913, there's not a lot of people actually living out in Queens. There isn't really a financial benefit to going to Queens. Now, do you remember that Steinway tube I talked about last episode that the Steinways had built? Um, And never used, right? Never used. It's finally employed into service here. As a result, that number seven train that uses the Steinway tube goes under the East River to Queensboro Plaza. Now, this is the key station in Queens. The elevateds would, of course, go over the recently built Queensboro Bridge. And we should also mention that some of these lines, especially these BRT lines, were elevated. In most of the areas, when we talk about subways, in fact, in a lot of this, they are called subways, but in fact are partially elevated in some areas. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Now, there are, t- there are two branches in Queens, and both the BRT and the IRT cooperated two of these branches. One of them went straight up to Astoria. The other went out to Flushing, Queens. So the Astoria line and the Flushing line, you had actually mentioned that earlier. I should mention that what made this sort of curious, having them share a branch in Queens, is the fact that the trains were actually different sizes. Mm-hmm. 
And still are. Uh, the tunnels in the stations in Queens actually accommodated the IRT lines. The BRT, the Brooklyn Transit trains, um, had a different width and a different number of cars associated. As a result, BRT customers, when they went to Queensboro, they actually had to transfer to an IRT train. They had to get to out. To continue their journey. Despite the, yeah, exactly, which is a little strange. We don't have to do that today, obviously. But that difference is actually preserved in trains today because, I mean, those tunnels didn't really right. change. We're still using those tunnels. And we still notice a difference in the width of the cars, even if it's only a foot or so, between, say, an Uptown 1 train and a D train. So say you're in a subway, and it seems a little like thinner. There's a little less room, but these trains are a little lighter. Well, this is an IRT train, and we today call them Division A. Division B trains are actually larger, a little heavier, and those reflect the BRT and the IND. Which, which we'll get to in a second. In just a second. These new lines weren't this like big financial boom that these companies wanted, but for the city, this was a huge success. It did achieve in relieving a lot of the congestion of the Lower East Side. All these thousands and thousands of people that were living here, they were finally moving out because these new tracks were now taking people to what would be called today the outer boroughs to these areas of Queens and Bronx and the Brooklyn. In fact, in the 1920s, I refer to the 1920s in a lot of ways. One of them is that I call it the decade of Queens because this is the decade that the population of the borough explodes. There's a massive population growth Thanks to this subway, and of course, thanks to the Queensboro Bridge, of course. Mm. And this is all before the days of widespread automobile use, of course. Now, and one of the sources I read called Tunneling to the Future, the author actually says that 90% of New York City's growth from 1910 to 1940, so 90% of this massive population influx is all in these outer boroughs. This is amazing to me, Tom. Like, for instance, Jackson Heights in Queens. Yes. From 1910 to 1940, the population grew over 500%. Wow. The same in the East Bronx, 500%. Coney Island grew 900% population in these 30 years because people... People could live there. And of course, like this in a way helped create the New York middle class because these immigrants could move out to these new areas. They could experience a greater quality of life. They could actually experience the idea of living in a single family home for the first time on blocks that, of course, would develop in a much different way than the blocks in what would be considered now the inner city or in Manhattan. Well, it also made the consolidated city more possible. And you know what else it made possible is the, is the boom of midtown Manhattan. Because, of course, it was already on its way to some great development because, of course, the, the growth of the entertainment industries. But with these new subways, uh, midtown Manhattan became the new business district of Manhattan. So say you could live out in the, quote, outer boroughs. And then take an express train into work. All for five cents. Now, what a deal. A good deal for the passengers, not so much, of course, for the participants, the city and the IRT and the BRT. We're talking around this time, World War I is occurring and the huge inflation, which is making the cost of operating these and building these lines a lot more than they bargained for, essentially. A real tragedy happened in November 1st of 1918. There was a huge subway accident in Brooklyn. We refer to it today as the Malbone Street Wreck. It happened as a train was entering a newly built subway tunnel on its way to the Prospect Park station. 
It took a curve a little bit too fast, and five cars derailed. Ninety-three people were killed. It's a terrible accident. One of the worst train accidents in history, as a matter of fact. So bad that this street, Malbone Street, you might be thinking of where yeah, that is. I've never they, heard of that. Well, they changed the name because it was sort of branded with this terrible disaster. They changed it to Empire Boulevard, by the mm-hmm. way. So between all of this and all the mounting costs, the BRT, the, the Brooklyn Rapid Transit, becomes insolvent by 1919. The entire company had to be reorganized. It had to be refinanced and eventually renamed. So goodbye, BRT. And and hello, BMT. The Brooklyn Manhattan Transit Corporation. Because of now, of course, it's not just one borough anymore. May I just ask, why couldn't they simply raise the fare? By 1920s, the subway had been open for 15 years. I mean, we're dealing with price increases, you know, what, every two years now? Of course. People did talk about raising the the fares. And, of course, the companies wanted to raise the fares. But it was always used as this very potent political tool, Mm. um, especially by mayors of the day, to get themselves reelected. Well, Greg, that just brings to mind a certain Mayor John Hyland, who was mayor from 1918 to 1925. Now, he had a very antagonistic relationship with the BMT. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me as somewhat comical, you know, the, the genesis of this antagonism <laughs> goes back to his days in law school when he was attending classes, I think, at night. He had been fired because he was actually driving the train, working for the BRT on the elevated. He was taking a curve too fast, and he had been observed by another employee reading a book while he was conducting the train. Well, I mean, that sounds a little bit like the circumstances of the Malbone, like taking a curve a little bit too quickly. I mean... Exactly. It's serious stuff. It must have been a good book, though. I think it was a law school book. (laughs) So, no. (laughs) He was fired for that, and it seems that he never really got over it. So, he took this antagonism toward the BRT and then the BMT with him into office. And he prevented them from doing all kinds of necessary work, from developing a shopyard in Coney Island, for example. He prevented that from being built. And then after the Malbone accident, he, he only ratcheted up the rhetoric more. So... His biggest campaign, however, against the subway was his drive to preserve the nickel fare. And by the 1920s, cars and stations were beginning to look a little run down and they needed more than a nickel. They had probably been running, well, the oldest ones, of course, had been running for almost 20 years at this time. Yes, since 1904. Mm -hmm. Well, he actually printed hundreds of thousands of little pins that read the Highland Five Cent Fare Club to help him get reelected to a second (laughs) term. And it may have worked that time, but it didn't work for a third term. He was voted out of office, and Jimmy Walker waltzed in in 1925. Well, we know Jimmy. He's the classy, dashing, and... Lovable. Oh, so corrupt. Handsome mayor of New York City. So Walker actually helped the BMT expand. He helped them get that shopyard over in Coney Island. And he also did something else. He helped another entity get into the subway game. Now, when we've talked about the subway lines and actually talked about the routes that we know today, we're talking about the one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, seven, and then go (laughs) over with the BMT. You know, we had the N and the R and the Q and the B and the D. Mm -hmm. There are some really important routes that are missing from this map in our head. So either they built them or a new partner comes into play here. And that would be the IND, the independent or what would be called for years, the 8th Avenue subway line. 
And this would be a subway line that would be run by the city itself. And it would be Jimmy Walker's administration's biggest priority and, and his administration's biggest achievement. In March of 1925, they broke ground for the IND. And over the course of construction, as the project you know, was run by his administration, and they weren't allergic to graft, the budget <laughs> swelled to $800 million dollars. In 1925 dollars. Yeah, that's that really isn't a massive. I'm surprised the city just didn't cave and un, un, like <laughs> cave under entirely. Right. That's ridiculous. Very Tweedian of him. Well, and even more strategic of him, Greg. The IND planners were looking out toward the day when they could also take over the IRT and the BMT. So they were planning routes that would actually crisscross the IRT and the BMT so that there could be transfers and stations and such. So in many ways, many of these new lines are more convenient to take Mm -hmm. because of all of these transferring opportunities. I'm sure these two private companies must have loved this. Oh, absolutely. There were a couple different innovations with these lines that the subway stations that they would build would be sort of brighter. They wouldn't be so ornamental like the old IRT stations, you know, with with the fancy tiling. They would be brighter, whiter affairs. And they would give their trains letters for the first time that were color-coded so that you could easily tell if you were on an A, B, C, D, E, or F train. Oh, so a more modern ride. More in line with what we have today. The construction advanced uh, with fewer accidents than the IRT or the BRT had. They were also a little bit more automated, using machines to do more of the digging and the hauling and things like that. I just have to give you some stats that I took from the book The Subway by Stan Fischler. I love stats. In the initial IND construction... It encompassed 28 stations with enough glazed tile in the stations to cover 5,500 average-sized bathrooms. <laughs> there would be 22 million cubic yards of earth excavated, enough to fill 198,000 freight cars. I mean, how do they know that type of information? Do they just fill up a few and just, like, multiply in their heads, I guess? And come up with 198,000. That's, that's an important detail. There was enough steel used in the IND construction to build three Empire State Buildings. Why didn't they? A quartet of Empire State Buildings? I mean, really? Rushing past. Made of subway shrapnel? <laughs> in the IND line, actually, they would have new cars uh, that were similar to the BMT cars, except they had four doors to a side instead of three. And they were also designing their doors to close faster so that they could make faster, you know, drop off and loading up passengers at stations. And when somebody blocked, they were having trouble on the other lines with people holding the doors. Well, today we have that problem. This is not a modern (laughs) problem. And so they had developed these doors that would only stop as far as the people had jammed them. So if somebody stuck their hand in, it wouldn't pop back open all the way. Instead, Mm. it would just sort of stop there, and you'd have to figure out what to do with your hand. So on September 10th of 1932, with a construction that had gone wildly over budget, The IND opened with no great fanfare, actually. It was just John Delaney, the chairman of the Board of Transportation, standing at the new 42nd Street station, looking at his watch, looking up at the guards who were holding people back, who were trying to get in, you know, through the turnstiles. And John Delaney said, open up. And the people came in. And the first person to ride that train was a seven-year-old by the name of William Riley from 46th (laughs) Street. 
He was actually born the day that the ground had been broken on the project, and he was the first to be allowed in. I don't think it was a coincidence. <laughs> so just briefly, because we've talked around what these routes were, in 1932 and 1933, the routes that opened up were the 8th Avenue line from Chambers up to 207th Street. That's today's A, C, and E, with, with a Cranberry Street tunnel, <laughs> with a Cranberry <laughs> Street sauce. Flavorful. With the Cranberry Street Tunnel connecting to J Street and Borough Hall opening in 1933. Also, Queens Boulevard Line, the E and the F, the Crosstown Line, which is today's G, and the Culver Line from J Street to Church Avenue. That's today's F in Brooklyn. My favorite. Why is it your favorite? It's a line I take every morning. Well, I think you might actually be thinking of something that opened a couple years later. Mm Mm-hmm which would be the expansion of the 6th Avenue line. Because that Culver line is in Brooklyn, but as soon as the IND opened, they started digging the 6th Avenue line. That finished in 1940. So trains could run from 50th Street down to West 4th along 6th Avenue. The biggest obstacle in that construction was at one of, up until right now, my least favorite stations <laughs> in New York, which has been the 34th Street 6th Avenue station. And I, I assume it's your least favorite because it's always, it's so bustling. It's, it's, it, there's it's never a dull moment. bustling, and as I take the F usually, I, you're buried in the bowels of this thing, you mm-hmm. know? And if you need to get out to the street, you know, it's ramps and it's escalators and it's uh-huh, and then staircases and then you're finally out and there are multiple ways to get out. It's a headache and I think many people would probably agree with me. However, when you realize what they went through to build this thing, I mean, first of all, the IND lines had to be built over Pennsylvania Railroad tubes and Long Island Railroad tubes because remember, down below, they've got tubes, trains going into Penn Station. Mm-hmm. The IND would have to be built under the Broadway BMT line because the N and R going under Broadway. Right. And meanwhile, this, there was a Sixth Avenue elevated rail overhead that had to continue to be supported during the construction. Mm-hmm. Not to mention all the vehicular and pedestrian traffic up above. And finally, if this wasn't enough, there was a huge water main carrying water from the Catskills to Manhattan (laughs) that was buried 200 feet underground. And with all the blasting that was going on, I mean, you know that station. It's enormous. They had to blast through a lot of things to build that space. They couldn't blast into accidentally the water supply coming in from the Catskills. So it was a very delicate operation. Now, I don't mean to be a broken record, but the IRT... And the, the BMT, they're having – now they have a competitor, the actual city, right. the IND. This five-cent fare, which is still in operation in the <laughs> 1940s, up into the 1940s, it's killing these private companies. They cannot – you know, they need to make more money, but they can't. The BMT never returned any revenue, by the way, back to the city. All that money that they ever made went back into the operation of it. Mm. Even worse, the IRT, the grand IRT, the company that started the first subway. August Belmont. In 1932, they went into receivership. They were basically kept on life support for years as they tried to negotiate a better deal with the city. And a better deal did come along, probably not what the stockholders of the IRT would have liked. To save this entire system, the city had to swoop in and had to take all of it under control. Which, of course, they obviously seem to have planned already. 
So on June 12, 1940, after all of these arduous negotiations, the city, for a mere price of $326 million, reimbursed these companies for their franchises. There was an elaborate ceremony with Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, who was now the mayor at the time. I'm actually not sure if Robert Moses was around. He might have been like flapping his wings somewhere <laughs> in a tree, somewhere looking down ominously. And even the disgraced Mayor Jimmy Walker was at this ceremony to, um, to officially use unify the subway now part of the deal of course because they had spent a lot of money it costs a lot of money they have to sort of make some cuts part of the deal was the elimination of almost all of the elevated lines so immediately that june many of the brooklyn elevated lines begin closing that very same day the ninth avenue l closed forever remember there were four elevated lines two in three six and ninth avenue yes the ninth avenue eliminated completely eliminated goodbye um, remember that was like the charles harvey that was the very yeah, first, sure. it lasted 70 years the second avenue l would also vanish that day i mean vanish it would stop service and then they'd rip the whole thing down methodically over the coming months completely gone by 1942 now that sixth avenue elevated by the way that you had talked about that had so hindered the 34th street station that one actually was already stopped in 1938. That left one elevated line in Manhattan, and that was, of course, the Third Avenue elevated. And believe it or not, it managed to hang on for 15 more years, and it stopped service in May 12th of 1955. It's just so odd to think of a relic like that, like operating into the mid-century. But they had to keep the Third Avenue elevated in place because people on the east side didn't have a subway. Because that Second Avenue hadn't been built yet, which we'll get to. I should add, by the way, that also by this time, most of the trolleys and streetcars were also gone from the landscape. Those were, of course, victim of a Robert Moses-style lust for cars and buses. So in 1953, the city put this new unified subway under the operation of the New York City Transit Authority. It actually kept the IRT, BMT, IND distinctions, which, of course, they, they kind of do officially today, of course. Shoot ahead just a few years later, on March 1st of 1968, the New York State Legislature actually creates an entity called the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, i.e. the MTA, to basically look over transportation of a lot of places in New York State, of course. That becomes the head agency for the New York Transit Authority. So today, it's run by the MTA. Going your way. However, by this time, 1968, not to speed up here, things aren't going anybody's way. No. Certainly not the cities, and I, you know, I, I would hate to be a subway rider at this time. And we're really taking broad strokes here, <laughs> obviously, to say the least, at the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and we can't do justice to it. However, let's just say that in the 60s, for budgetary reasons, the MTA had postponed various maintenance projects and mm -hmm. such. So that by the 70s, the conditions of tracks and of the cars had really deteriorated. There were these so-called red flag areas where trains couldn't go at their full speed. They'd have to slow down to 10 miles an hour or less. And oh. so in the 70s, there were hundreds of these spots about the various routes. Also throughout the 70s, with fare increases that we'll talk about, mm -hmm. That, that actually caused fewer riders to take the subway, which did nothing for their bottom line. Well, money was too tight to mention for anybody. Cars were often dark and covered in graffiti. Labor relations were actually not very good. There were strikes in 1966, a 12-day strike in 1980. Mm -hmm. So times were tough. 
Well, they were tough throughout the whole city, but it was reflected very badly in the subway. Crime was another major issue. Uh, the city had a crime rate that was 70% higher than the rest of the U.S. in 1980. And each day, there were actually 38 crimes committed in the subway. This led to an incident uh, on December 22, 1984, in which Bernard Goetz, the so-called subway vigilante, got onto a train 14th Street on, and 7th Avenue. Now, he had been robbed once on Canal Street, and as a result, he had bought himself a revolver, which he kept concealed. He boards a number two train on, at 14th Street, and there are four young men from the Bronx who get in the car with him. As soon as the car takes off, they sort of corner him at one end of the car, block him off from other passengers, and demand some money from him. He pretends to not really hear what they say. He asks them again. They say, give us some money. And he takes out the gun, and he shoots five times, and he hits all four of them. He didn't kill any of them, but he did serious damage to it's, some of them. It's amazing because that made national news. And I mean, I remember that when I was young. And what that said about New York City, the fact that like right. base, ba people basically had to take you know matters into their own hands right. was, to survive. He was lawless. Now, in trial, the jury actually found him not guilty of all charges except one, carrying an unlicensed weapon. And he oh. ended up serving eight months in jail. I think that this incident has come to represent New York at its crime-ridden worst. Well, and also, Yeah, sure. These were trying times. Happily, the city did turn around, the subways did improve, and things are certainly not bleak like this yes, today. Most subways that you get on in most times today in most areas of New York are clean, somewhat fairly pleasant experiences, considering that it's a subway that runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I would say. Now, before we get to our final story here, which is the a subway line that does not exist technically yet. I want to go back really quickly and just talk about, because we've made such a big point about that five cent fare, that five cent fare. <laughs> um, like it killed, it almost killed New York. It had an extraordinary run. It really like from the birth of the subway to 1948, 44 years, and then they finally bump it up to 10 cents. And then slowly throughout the years, it just edges up ever so, you know, ever so slowly, like 10 cents there, 20 cents, 30 cents. 50 cents in 1975, it was 50 cents. Hmm. 10 years later, 1986, so 11 years later, it hits a dollar. And of course, today it's $2.25 and has been that way for the past year. But I think it's going up. Oh, I mean, like, turn a calendar page and, and the fare's <laughs> going up here. I mean, it's a, it's a bone of contention to politicians and to voters, whatever. Back in 1904, they used a ticket. You got a ticket and when they ticket chopper and you went up to a booth and you bought a ticket like you were going to the movies. The IRT thought this was a little too ungainly. In fact, they they assumed that their own employees were, right. were cheating and like were like slipping people some. Well, those were a lot of nickels you could hoard. So they got some automated turnstiles that then actually took nickels. Uh huh. Uh, in 1953, it was the introduction of the tokens system. And do you know why they went to tokens? I mean, it's very obvious, of course. Well, probably because it could then more easily switch fares. Well, exactly. Um, and because that it was the very year they raised it to 15 cents. Uh -huh. So you didn't have to, of course, like drop in a, a dime and a nickel. You could just drop in this like funky token. Now, over the years, would be five different designs for this token. I think one of the most famous ones is that 
Y shape that's carved yeah. out of it. I mean, that's very nostalgic. Get in line at the token booth and get a little bag. Remember, you could get yeah. a 10-pack bag. Or just like an arcade. You put your money in it and it clatters, like, you know, right. clanks, all that comes out <laughs> of the machine. But in, it would all change in 1994 with the introduction of the Metro card. Believe it or not, if you remember, like, the tokens in the Metro card, like, basically were like, operated side the same, by side, side by yeah. side. It was only until 2003 that the token was actually fixed. Phased out. 2003? 2003. You could still use tokens? Yes. Isn't that unbelievable? So they haven't even been gone for, you know, eight years uh, from the time of this recording of the podcast. But, of course, these metric cards allow you to do all sorts of things like discounts, special offers. Well, transfers between the subway and the bus, I think, was one of the most popular aspects of it. We have these metric cards. We can go all everywhere around in the city. But there is this phantom, nostalgic, holy grail of a line that hopefully one day will exist in our city, but has been in the planning stages, I guess, for decades, correct? Correct. In fact, in the 1920s, uh, the Second Avenue subway line was originally proposed as a six-track super highway that would permit the (laughs) demolition of both the second avenue and the third avenue elevated lines so we've been talking about this for almost 90 years that's absurd in 1942 when the second avenue elevated was demolished city hall assured passengers that the subway construction would begin immediately upon the demolition of the elevated well of course it didn't In the 40s, the Board of Transportation was drafting new plans. In the 50s, the public passed a $500 million transportation bond, of which $446 million was set aside explicitly to build the Second Avenue subway line. But I mean, where did that money go? I mean, clearly nothing much happened. I guess it wasn't truly explicit but (laughs) it it went to repair tracks and you know buy new cars and things Mm -hmm. they basically spent it elsewhere so in the 60s in 1968 mayor lindsay started again the plans to restart the second avenue subway line and on october 28th 1972 (laughs) notice how we just keep jumping forward lindsay and governor rockefeller broke ground on the project at 2nd Avenue and 103rd Street. And they actually built three sections, 110th to 120th Street, 2nd Street to 9th Street, and Canal Street and around the Manhattan Bridge that approached. So those areas of the 2nd Avenue subway were built. So so underground between 2nd Street and 9th Street, there's a tunnel there. Wow. But it's just unused. It's a haunted, empty tunnel. So next time you're at a bar on 2nd Avenue and you're downstairs (laughs) in the bathroom, just kind of like push the wall. See if you can cave in and you can can actually... sneak into the tunnel. (laughs) But of course, in 1975, because of the budget crisis that you mentioned, Mayor Abe Beam at the time put a hold on the tunneling and the construction work. He just didn't put it into the city budget. And so things got sealed up and construction ground to a halt. But demand was still there. I mean, the east side, because of the developments that we were talking about, became more populated than ever. The 456 line, or the Lexington Avenue IRT, (laughs) became the most traveled piece of rail in the country. In fact, today, 1.3 million passengers ride that line every day. It's actually, there are more passengers on the 456 than on the entire D.C. metro system, <laughs> which is the, the nation's second largest, or more passengers than on the combined rail ridership of the next three systems, oh San Francisco, God. Chicago, and Boston. But that, uh, that's not surprising. If you, if you ride that train, I mean, when is it not 
super packed because that's there's there's obviously there needs to be another line there. Um, obviously, and there are bits and pieces of it built over <laughs> on Second Avenue. However, in the 1990s, the city went through some economic recovery. Thankfully, people started talking about this again in November of 2005. New York voters passed a measure to partially fund the redevelopment of the subway line, and two years later, in April of 2007, groundbreaking was held for the restarting for the third or fourth restarting of the construction of the Second Avenue line. So listeners, in your lifetime, you or someone you know may experience a ride on this legendary Second Avenue subway. And you know what it's going to be called. I'm very excited. Um, it's going to be a letter. It's, it's going to be a letter line, and it's uh-huh. going to be called the T-line. The T-line, and it's teal. Oh, Okay, well, don't hold your breath for this line, okay? The, the Bowery Boys in the, in the year 2130 are still going to be talking about this Second Avenue subway line. Well, in 2016, they have slated 2016 for the opening of Phase 1, which should be 96th Street to 63rd Street. And, they, you know, they're digging right now. So I am optimistic about this new T-line. So we, the Bowery Boys, have taken you from the past into yes. the present and through into the future of the New York City subway system. We're not going to have another podcast, at least for a few months, on the taxis and the buses. I mean, those, are, those will have to be covered in separate, uh, separate <laughs> segments. I do want to add, however, that what would complete uh, your experience here, public transportation history, would be a visit to the New York Transit Museum, which is in Brooklyn. It is extraordinary. And you, ha- you have all the examples of the old turnstiles and ticket booths. And of course, th- the real pleasure downstairs, when you walk down to the platforms, because it's in an old station, you walk down to the platforms and you can walk through time through the various cars uh, that have served the IRT, the BMT, and the IND. And we didn't even really get to talk about the great old cars that ran along those lines because we simply ran out of time. But the original cars from 1904, from their very first track. Right. Uh, to kind there. of wacky, futuristic cars in the <laughs> 40s, 50s, and 60s. I will have a link to their website on our website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, and I will have a lot of pictures illustrating a lot of the different lines and situations that we have talked about today on the show. We'd also love to have you join us on Facebook, become our friend, and we promise we'll never talk about the nickel fare again. <laughs> well, we're at our destination. We're, we're at the end. I'll have a show in two weeks. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.